Chapter One of The Smuggler of King's Cove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Smuggler of King's Cove by Sylvanus Cobb, Jr. Chapter One Our Hero Makes Two Promises. We doubt if there is anywhere on the seaboard of England another stretch of coast so wild and rugged, and so forbidding of aspect to navigators, as is that of Headlandshire, probably so called because of its numerous bold headlands overlooking the Irish Sea. Not far from the midway of this stretch of coast is an inlet of the sea called Raven Bay, and from this bay there is still another inlet, narrow and dubious of entrance, but deep and broad within, called King's Cove. The story goes that once upon a time an English king, fleeing from his rebellious subjects by sea, sought shelter here and safety and found them both. The bay itself is no mean shelter when safely gained. Above its entrance are numerous rocks, large and small, some lifting their storm-beaten crests above the surface of the water, while many lie hidden beneath it. Also, there are a number of small islands so arranged as to effectually veil the inlet from the eyes of strangers passing to and fro outside. The man who would run even an ordinary yacht in safety into Raven Bay must be thoroughly acquainted with every fathom of the true channel. But though we have gained that first haven, we see nothing of King's Cove, not a sign of it. Yet it is not far off. Away in the southeast corner are two small well-wooded islands which appear when viewed from the bosom of the bay to be simple lumps of the mainland, but once get in behind the outer one, and we find a narrow, deep, winding channel running between the two and finally opening into a basin of water wonderful to behold. There it lies, an entirely landlocked off-put of the sea, oval in form, very nearly a mile long by three-quarters of a mile wide, deep enough and broad enough to float a naval squadron. Not only was this cove landlocked, but it was so completely environed by woods, by forest monarchs, as to be invisible from the land as from the waterside. From Raven Bay the view landward was partly wild and rugged, but altogether picturesque and romantic. On the left, to the northward as we faced inward from the seas, distant a mile and a half rose a grim towering mass of volcanic rock known as the Witch's Crag. Towards the bay the crag descended gradually, a continuous ragged rocky declivity to the water's edge. Eastward from the bay, on a gradual verdant slope many miles in extent, opened to view one of the most beautifully romantic scenes in England, the magnificent park, the outlying farms, the flanking forest and the grand old castle of Allerdale. While nearer at hand, close upon the shore, nestled a pretty village bearing the same name. And this whole stretch of landscape was cut in twain near its centre by a silvery, limpid stream rising in the distant hills and flowing westward until it mingled its tide with the waters of the bay. It was called Dale River. There is one other view that must not be overlooked. Away to the right, towards the south, half a mile from the village, but only a few rods distant from the eastern shore of King's Cove, in the edge of the forest, with no other human habitation near, stood a small stone cottage, the abode, when on shore, of the chief of a crew of smugglers, whose lair was in the adjacent hidden inlet.
We now approach two scenes of a different character. The first is in the cottage of the smuggler chief. Hugh Maitland, now close upon his 40th year, had for a full half his life been a bold and successful smuggler. Never as yet had he been arrested. Not only had the secret cove afforded him safe hiding from the king's cruisers, but the mass of the people, high and low, whom he had furnished abundantly and cheaply with many a luxury of life, had been his friends tried and true in the hour of need. At length, however, an enemy with whom he was powerless to contend had laid its unsparing hand upon him. He was dying. A round shot from the bow-gun of a revenue-cutter had struck the quarter-rail of his brig, knocking therefrom a splinter which had entered his side. Two surgeons had been with him until within a few minutes of the time when we look in upon him, and had promised to call again during the day, but not with the hope of saving him. Death was sure and close at hand. The dying chief lay upon a comfortable bed in a rear apartment on the ground floor of the cottage, and near him were two persons, his wife Marjorie and his son Percy. Marjorie Maitland was of middle age, a tall handsome woman of dark complexion, her hair black as a raven's wing, with a pair of full bright restless eyes to match. She had loved her husband better than anything else on earth, her marriage had cost her friends and position, and she had prized the thing gained accordingly. She had been a faithful and devoted companion of his home life, making the home as pleasant and as attractive to him as she could. Perhaps if his life had been entirely passed at home, she might not have made it quite an Elysium for him, but let that pass. With regard to her love for her son, of that anon. Percy Maitland had entered upon the sixteenth year of his life, he looked old for his age. Neither in form nor feature did he resemble his father or his mother. He was tall, like his mother, and like her, handsome, and there the likeness ended. He was of a light, ruddy complexion. His hair, floating about his shapely head in wavy masses, was a rich, golden auburn in colour. His eyes were as blue as sapphires, his brow high, broad and full, and the lower features in symmetrical keeping. The whole face, in short, was a picture of manly beauty. It was a face to admire, a face to love, and above and beyond all, it was most emphatically a face to trust. Falsehood and deceit, treachery and cunning, together with all the baser passions and instincts of human nature, were as foreign to that face as is darkness to the full blaze of noonday. His youth gave ample promise of a strong and vigorous manhood. Whatever had been the feelings of the mother toward her son, his father had loved him with a love bordering on passion. He had been proud of his boy's beauty and proud of his surpassing intellectual qualities. And when Percy had decided that he would not sail in the brig as one of her crew, that he could not find it in his heart to become a smuggler, the chieftain had seen the curate of the village church, a finished scholar, and engaged him to be private tutor to his boy. And so it had been. Strangely enough, the mother had fought against all this. She had insisted upon it, had put forth all her influence to that end, that the boy should follow the fortunes of his father and be ready, when the time should come, to take command of the smuggler brig. But she had pleaded and laboured in vain. The love of the father had been proof against all opposing forces. A November day was drawing to its close, 
and a November chill was in the fierce gusts that shook the limbs of the forest trees outside, as Hugh Maitland lay dying in the old stone cottage. For several minutes he had gazed upon the face of his son, thinking deeply. By and by he spoke. Percy! The boy started and looked up. Then he arose and would have advanced to the bedside, but his father waved him back. No, no, sit down, my boy. I have something to say to you now. When the youth was again seated, I wish for you to answer me. Have I not, so far as I could, so far as it was in me to do, been a kind and loving father to you? Oh, father, cried the son, extending his clasped hands towards the bed. You've been all that an earthly parent could be. I know that you have loved me well and truly. Since I can remember, your whole heart has been mine, and you know, you know, father, that I have loved you in return. I am a boy, I do know it, and I tell you truly, your love has been a blessing to me. He paused here, and closed his eyes, as though to rest. He had spoken with difficulty, for he had become very weak, and the speaking fatigued him. Presently he looked up and spoke again. His tones were low and wavering, but with a depth that plainly told of former power and compass, and he spoke distinctly. Percy, I have two requests to make, two promises I ask for you in return. It is understood on all hands. Your mother understands, and Donald Rodney understands, and through him every man of the crew will gain knowledge, that you are henceforth and forever free from any connection whatever with the contraband traffic. You shall never be asked to go outside in our vessel, nor shall you be asked to help land any item of our contraband goods. Hush! Don't thank me yet. Wait until you've heard my requests. My dear boy, I shall not live to see another day. I am bleeding internally. Ah! I know the signs. The end is nearer than you think. I am going going to leave your mother alone, if you forsake her. My first petition is this. Until you have reached the age of one and twenty, you will make the old cot your home, and give your mother your presence and your care. Surely you will not refuse me this. Marjorie has been a faithful wife to me, and I shall feel death robbed of much of its terror in the knowledge that she is not to be left alone. Percy saw very plainly the hand of his mother in this. He knew, as though he had heard her, that she had put that request into his father's mouth and had urged him to press it strongly. But, under any circumstances, he would not have refused. He had a deep, a heartfelt desire to be near the castle, and in what other way could he so surely attain that end? If he took a few seconds for thought before he answered, it was not with the appearance of hesitation. When he spoke, not only were his tones frank and hearty, but the warm, loving light of his handsome face told her that he was sincere. Father, I will do what you ask, provided, of course, that no unforeseen event beyond my power to overcome shall interpose to prevent it. That is understood, of course, and I thank you, my boy. I thank you from my heart. I shall die easier in the assurance that Marjorie is to have the tender, loving care of our son after I am gone. And now, Percy, to my second request. He paused a little time, while his wife arose and went into the room adjoining, 
returning presently with a phial and a glass. She prepared for the sufferer a potion, which one of the physicians had prescribed, and he drank it, experiencing therefrom temporary relief and strength. Percy, are you aware of the fact that when I am dead and gone, that you will be the only living man who can safely run our brig into the cove? Rodney can do it, father, the youth replied with much surprise. No, no, he cannot. The last time in I gave up the command to him when we were about a mile outside Hood's Island, and if you'll believe me, we came within an ace of losing the old staghound, and, most likely, losing a few of ourselves as well. While I was looking in another direction, never dreaming of danger, we were within a dozen fathoms of the northern point of Dead Man's Reef. Yes, my boy, had I been ten seconds later, no power on earth could have saved us. Poor old Donald. He said he had no idea the reef made up so far. Perhaps I have been wrong. I have kept our secret so close for my own good. You learn the course almost by instinct. By the way, didn't you tell me that you discovered a safe channel somewhere about the midway of that reef? Yes, father. I found it last spring. It is just about midway between the southern headland of the bay and the northern extremity of the reef. I took soundings and got all the necessary bearings for coming in. There are no reliable bearings by which to run out. They're not needful, boy, but the time may come when that way of running in may be of use. My soul, it doesn't seem possible. I wouldn't have believed that a course through that reef could have been found for a fair-sized barge, let alone a brig. But, my dear boy, this isn't getting on with business, and I feel that my voice is giving out. Yes, father, your second request, has it to do with piloting the brig? Yes, Percy, I want you to give me your promise that, while you find a home here in the old cottage, you will pilot the brig in whenever you are asked to do so. As you know, we have other havens. For the year to come, she may not have occasion to run in here more than once or twice. This is the refuge when the King's cruisers are at our heels. So on other occasions, we come here but seldom. Of course, said the youth. Until I can teach others how to find the true course, I will find it for them. But when I shall have taught Rodney, he can, in turn, teach others. Ah, my boy, interrupted the chief. The teaching of others is the very thing we wish to avoid. You and Rodney will be enough. Surely you can do that for the old crew after I'm gone. Enough, father. I give you the promise. While I shall remain here, say, till I'm twenty-one, whenever I shall receive due notice that the brig is outside, or is expected, and that I am wanted to pilot her in, I will take my boat and find her. Bless you, Percy. Bless you. I've no more to ask. I shall die with less of regret now that I have those two pledges from you. Father, said the boy, after a time of silence, during which Marjorie had given her husband another dose of medicine, who is that young fellow that's made two or three runs with you to the French coast? Ralph Tryon, I heard Rod Worship near call him. Oh, returned the failing chief, with a dubious motion of the head. He's nobody you care about. But you can tell me who he is, where he came from, or... Percy, don't you see? Your father is suffering. It was Marjorie who had thus interfered. The dying man would have checked her, but his voice failed him, 
and he sank back on the pillow with a moan of pain. Sank back and lifted not his head again. Neither did he speak any more. Half an hour later, the son was kneeling by the bedside in devout prayer, while the bereaved wife, now widowed, wept in the first great sorrow of her life. The second scene is at the castle, where there is a bed on which lies one dying. It is now November. In the early springtime, Sir William Chester had come to Allerdale Castle in failing health, bringing with him his only child, Cordelia, a girl of twelve years and little more. She was all that was left to him of his own blood to care for and to love. His wife had died several years before in India, where he was employed by the government. His parents had both died during his youth, and brother or sister he never had. Neither had he an uncle or an own cousin. An aunt by marriage he possibly may have had. Where she was living she could be nothing to him. Thomas Brandon, Earl of Allerdale, had reached the age of sixty-four, a hale, hearty old man, seemingly as strong and vigorous as ever. He was a handsome man, tall and strong, with a full broad chest, his limbs shapely and muscular, with a step as firm and light as that of youth. He had a grand head, covered with snow-white hair, and a strongly marked face that retained much, very much, of its old-time beauty. For Tom Brandon, when he had been simple Lord Oakley, had been accounted one of the handsomest men of his time. The Earl was but little better off in the way of kindred than was his guest. He had a son and a grandson, and that completed the list. His wife had died while he was still young, leaving him with one child, and he had never married again. His son George, Lord Oakley, was absent in India. From him Sir William had come when he had first appeared at the castle. George Brandon and William Chester were very nearly of the same age. The former was forty-six, the later one year younger. They had been very friendly in youth, had been classmates at college, and had been very much together in after life. In India they had been like brothers, a common misfortune or calamity having cemented the bonds of their union more firmly and more closely than ever before. It was the death of their wives. They had resided beneath the same roof in Calcutta. There Lady Chester had been taken down with fever, and Lady Brandon had helped to nurse her. Suffice it to say, both had the fever, and both died. Sir William was left with his little Cordelia, then only ten, Lord Oakley being left with a son three years older. A few months after the sad bereavement, Lord Oakley sent his son Matthew home to England, to the care of his father, the Earl having written out an earnest request that it should be so done. The boy arrived safely, and from that time had been his grandfather's charge. Little more than a year later, Sir William had begun to feel that his failing health betokened something serious. He was convinced that he should never recover in India. He considered a perfect recovery impossible, but were he to seek his native land, he might gain a few more years of life. So, towards the close of the year, he had made his arrangements for returning home, said Lord Oakley after the thing had been settled and the baronet had packed up. You say your father has no settled home in England. Your family estate, the home of your ancestors, Laban Abbey, with its park and forest, you have leased for a term of years, and of course you cannot push your tenant out if he wishes to remain, which we know he does. 
So, my dear Willie, do you make your way to Allerdale and there cast anchor? My father will be delighted to see you, delighted to hear from me, and a thousand times delighted when you tell him that you have come to make a good long stop with him. There your little Cordelia will have my boy Matt to play with, and further the young hero will be old enough and strong enough to have a care for her. Tell me, promise me it shall be so. When Sir William had finally given the required promise, he had a request to make on his own account, and he made it thus. George, I am a sicker man than you think. Should it prove in the end that I am going to England only to die, I wish to leave my child in your charge. You will be her guardian. Promise me that. At first, George Brandon had been unwilling to listen to any such thing as his friend's dying, but at length, when the baronet had pushed him into a corner, he had replied, Look ye, William, you are going to Allerdale. That is settled. If you are to die, as you seem to think may be possible, you will die there. If that is to be, let my father be your daughter's guardian. She could not have a better. You can arrange with him, if you please, that should he die while Cordelia is under age, and I should survive him, he may transfer the authority to me. Under such circumstances, I should assume the duties most cheerfully, though with sad remembrance. However, my father is a hale and hearty man, and comes of a long-lived stock. I am very sure, barring accidents, that he will live to see your daughter married. So Sir William had left India with the understanding that if a guardian should be required for his child, the old earl should be the man. Once Lord Oakley had let fall the remark that it might be a pleasant thing in the future that their children should become united in marriage, but Sir William had made no response. Perhaps he felt it was too early to be thinking of marriage for his little pet, and it is not impossible that he preferred to wait a few years and see what sort of a husband his friend's son gave promise of making. That was the first and last word ever spoken between Lord Oakley and Sir William Chester regarding the marriage of their children, but it was not the last of the subject, as we shall see anon. End of chapter 1